The world is a confusing place, filled with all manner of shimmering distractions that take our conscious mind and our immortal souls and subvert them into the most basal of human emotions. Can any one of us who considers ourselves a spiritual being truly look around the carnival at the barkers, performers, and the caged animals and believe, even momentarily, that any of this is as it should be? My name is Alan Bishop, the alchemist of the Black Forest of Indiana, distiller, historian, occasional tinker, reenactor, and your host of If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. Have you ever noticed the world isn't quite what it presents itself to be? That something is just a little off kilter, just a little out of focus. Perhaps that movement you caught out of the corner of your eye was more than a shadow, that weight on your shoulder more than fatigue. I have lived my whole life like this, aware, awake, and waiting for the next experience, positive or negative, always apprehensive, always analyzing. I believe that spiritual warfare is real. I believe from societal observation that others are becoming acutely aware. I believe that many are being influenced by forces unknown in a negative and spiritually deprived way. I see soft disclosure in every corner of pop culture. Join us as we pull back the curtain, as the veil thins and reach with us into the ether to reclaim the truth. But if you have ghosts, you have everything. Hey guys, welcome back to If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything with your host, Alan Bishop, the alchemist of Indiana's Black Forest. Today, the final episode of Season 2, and we hope you've enjoyed Season 2 as much as we've enjoyed researching it and making it. Today, we're going to dive into some of my own personal spirituality, and perhaps some with a couple of guests as well. So this episode's not going to be for everybody. I will just warn you right up front. I know some people aren't going to get it. There are people within the distilling industry who will hear it who definitely won't get it. And let me just be completely uh, blunt and honest with you. Uh, your opinion, if it differs from mine and you can't discuss your opinion as opposed to make fun of my opinion, doesn't matter to me. This isn't about you people in the distilling industry that don't see things this way. This is about me. I'm working on a third book currently that deals exactly with the subject of spirituality within distillation. And for any of you who are familiar with the art of distillation, you will understand by the roots of distillation and where it comes from in the alchemical arts and the esoteric and occult arts, that very much so, this falls right in line with some of the ideas that early distillers and early alchemists had. You'll also understand that there are some let's say, spiritual mile markers involved in the very art of distillation itself. Nonetheless, my goal from day one with this podcast has been to make it as personal as I could possibly make it in order to sort of 
place myself into the narrative of these various different stories that I'm trying to tell or these various different interviews that I'm doing. I feel like that, that makes it much more authentic than some of the other shows that find themselves in this sort of same uh, space as far as high strangeness, the occult, the esoteric, uh, mysteries, etc. Uh, I feel like it gives me a better grasp of my guests and the subjects that I'm talking about. And so today I'm going to dive into that quite a bit. And we're going to begin that conversation with something that I find really cool and really interesting. I try to always weave my ideas, my beliefs, my superstitions, if you will, into my daily life as much as possible and into my practice of distillation outside of not only, you know, the historical family ties I have to elicit distillation and outside of my current daily trade within the distillery uh, whereupon I get paid a check. These, th these are things that I think that I would have found one way, shape, form, or the other uh, because of the way that I am minded, right? These are some ideas, beliefs, uh, I'm not big on the word beliefs, let's just say ideas for now, that I've had and I've developed throughout my lifetime from a, from a kid having some experiences all the way up till now, just now being 39 years old. And I can even say that within the art of distillation itself, even if I didn't have the family ties, the historical ties, etc., that I do have, I think that I would have found the art of distillation eventually. If not, then definitely the art of brewing and winemaking and mead making and cider making, etc., because there are so many parallels to that alchemy of the physical substance into something more. A key of sorts that opens doors, sometimes positively and sometimes when abused negatively. I certainly think I would have been drawn into that, especially with my love for uh, both the metaphysical world, uh, the spiritual world, and agriculture. It just, it all comes together in that way for me. So the first uh, thing we're going to talk about this evening is the idea of an animal familiar this idea of an animal familiar, it's as old as time itself. It's often associated modernly with witchcraft and sorcery and subsequently, of course, demons. And it's said to serve or prompt its master in some way, shape or form, but often with a uh, primary goal of serving old Scratch himself, old Satan. This, for me, is an unfortunate side effect of our loss of animism and personal spirituality. And with the particular animal familiar that I'm going to talk about here momentarily, uh, there are even a couple of biblical instances of this uh, familiar being associated with Christianity and not necessarily in a negative way. So today we're going to talk about what I consider my familiar, the crow. But first, let us dive into just exactly what a familiar is with a little, uh, I guess, breakdown as it were. So for this segment, we're going to turn to Wikipedia for a little bit of a synopsis, and I will uh, <clears throat> include the things that I find relevant and exclude the things that I don't think will fit the show. And I do this with no shame whatsoever, because surprisingly, on this particular subject, Wikipedia is very accurate. So familiar. In European folklore of the medieval and early modern periods, familiars, sometimes referred to as familiar spirits, were believed to be supernatural entities that would assist witches and cunning folk in their practice of magic. According to records of the time, 
Those alleged to have contact with familiar spirits reported that they could manifest as numerous forms, usually as an animal, but sometimes as a human or humanoid figure, and were described as clearly defined three-dimensional forms vivid with color and animated with movement and sound, as opposed to descriptions of ghosts with their smoky, undefined forms. When they served witches, they were often thought to be malevolent, but when working for cunning folk, they were often considered benevolent, although there was some ambiguity in both cases. The former were often categorized as demons, while the latter were more commonly thought of and described as fairies. The main purpose of familiars was to serve the witch, providing protection for them as they came into their new powers. Since the 20th century, some magical practitioners, including adherents of neo-pagan religion of Wicca, used the concept of familiars due to their association with older forms of magic. These contemporary practitioners use pets or wildlife or believe that invisible versions of familiars act as magical aids. Pierre A. Rifford proposed this definition and quotations. A familiar spirit, alter ego, doppelganger, personal demon, personal totem, spirit companion, is the double, the alter ego, of an individual. It does not look like the individual concerned, even though it may have an independent life of its own. It remains closely linked to the individual. The familiar spirit can be an animal or an animal companion. The French poet Charles Baudelaire, a cat fancier, believed in familiar spirits. It is the familiar spirit of the place. It judges, presides, inspires everything in its empire. It is perhaps a fairy or a god when my eyes, drawn like a magnet to this cat that I love. A.P. Elkin studied the belief in familiar spirits among Australian Aboriginal people. A usual method or explanation is that the medicine man sends his familiar spirit, his assistant totem, spirit dog, spirit child, or whatever the form may be, to gather the information. While this is occurring, the man himself is in a state of receptivity, in sleep or trance. In modern phraseology, spiritism, his familiar spirit would be the control, the control spirit. Among those accused witches and cunning folk who described their familiar spirits, there were commonly certain unifying features. The historian Emma Wilby noted how the accounts of such familiars were striking for their ordinariness and naturalism, despite the fact that they were dealing with supernatural entities. Familiar spirits were most commonly small animals, such as cats, rats, dogs, ferrets, birds, frogs, toads, and hares. There were also cases of wasps and butterflies, as well as pigs, sheep, and horses. Familiar spirits were usually kept in pots or baskets, lined with sheep's wool, and fed a variety of things including milk, bread, meat, and blood. Familiar spirits usually had names and were often given down-to-earth and frequently affectionate nicknames. One example of this was Tom Reed, who was the familiar of the cunning woman and accused witch Bessie Dunlop, while other examples included Griselle and Gringut, who were the familiars of the 17th century Huntingdonshire witch Jane Wallace. An Agathian is a familiar spirit, which appears in the shape of a human or an animal, or even within a talisman, bottle, or magic ring. It is strongest at midday. Meeting in the British accounts, from the early modern period at least, there were three main types of encounter narrative related to how a witch or cunning person first met their familiar. The first of these was that the spirit spontaneously appeared in front of the individual while they were going about their daily activities, either in their home or outdoors somewhere. 
Various examples for this are attested in the sources of the time. For instance, Joan Prentice from Essex, England, gave an account when she was interrogated for witchcraft in 1589, claiming that she was alone in her chamber and sitting upon a low stool preparing herself to bedward when her familiar first appeared to her. While the Cornish cunning woman, Anne Jeffreys, related in 1645 that hers first appeared to her when she was knitting in an arbor in her garden. The second manner in which the familiar spirit commonly appeared to magical practitioners in Britain was that they would be given to a person by a pre-existing individual, who was sometimes a family member and at other times a more powerful spirit. For instance, the alleged witch Margaret Lay from Liverpool claimed in 1667 that she had been given her familiar spirit by her mother when she died, while the Leicestershire cunning woman Joan Wilmot related in 1618 that a mysterious figure, whom she only referred to as her quote-unquote master, willed her to open her mouth, and he would blow into her a fairy which should do her good, and that she opened her mouth, and that presently after blowing there came out of her mouth a spirit, which stood upon the ground in the shape and form of a woman. In a number of accounts, the cunning person or witch was experiencing difficulty prior to the appearance of the familiar, who offered to aid them. As historian Emma Wilby noted, their problems were primarily rooted in the struggle for physical survival, the lack of food or money, bereavement, sickness, loss of livelihood, and so on, and the familiar offered them a way out of this by giving them magical powers. In some cases, the magical practitioner then made an agreement or entered a pact with their familiar spirit. The length of time that the witch or cunning person worked with the familiar spirit varied between a few weeks through to a number of decades. In most cases, the magical practitioner would conjure their familiar spirit when they needed their assistance, although there are many different ways that they did this. The Essex witch Joan Cunney claimed in 1589 that she had to kneel down within a circle and pray to Satan for her familiar to appear, while the Wiltshire cunning woman Anne Bodenham described in 1653 that she conjured her familiars by methods learned from books. In some rare cases, there were accounts where the familiars would appear at times when they were unwanted and not called upon. For instance, the Huntingdonshire witch Elizabeth Chandler noted in 1646 that she could not control when her two familiars, named Beelzebub and Trollabub, appeared to her and had prayed for God to deliver her therefrom. It was also believed that familiars helped diagnose illness and the sources of bewitchment, and were used for divining and finding lost objects and treasures. Magicians conjured them in rituals, then locked them in bottles, rings, and stones. They sometimes sold them as charms, claiming the spirits would ensure success in gambling, love, business, or whatever the customer wanted. This sort of familiar was technically not illegal. England's Witchcraft Act of 1604 prohibited only evil and wicked spirits. Familiars are most common in Western Europe mythology with some scholars arguing that familiars are only present in the traditions of Great Britain and France. In these areas, three categories of familiar are believed to exist. Familiar spirits manifesting as humans and humanoids throughout Western Europe, divinatory spirits manifesting as animals, Great Britain and France, and malevolent spirits manifesting as animals only in Greece. Just to touch on an older, more animism-based version of what a familiar is... In Norse mythology, Hugin, thought, and Munin, memory or mind, are a pair of ravens that fly all over the world, Midgard, and bring information to the god Odin. 
Hugen and Munen are attested in the poetic Edda compiled in the 13th century from earlier traditional sources, the Prose Edda, and a third grammatical treatise compiled in the 13th century, and in the poetry of skalds. The names of the ravens are sometimes moderately anglicized as Hugen and Munen. In the poetic Edda, a disguised Odin expresses that he fears that they may not return from their daily flights. The prose Edda explains that Odin is referred to as Haravnagud due to his association with Hugen and Munin. In the prose Edda and the third grammatical treatise, the two ravens are described as perching on Odin's shoulders. Heimskringla details that Odin gave Hugen and Munin the ability to speak. Examples of artifacts that may depict Odin with one of the ravens include migration period golden bracelets, Vendel-era helmet plates, a pair of identical Germanic Iron Age bird-shaped brooches, Viking Age objects depicting a mustached man wearing a helmet, and a portion of the 10th or 11th century Thorwald's Cross. Hugen and Munin's role as Odin's messengers has been linked to shamanic practices. The Norse Raven Banner, general raven symbolism amongst the Germanic peoples, and a Norse concept of the Fugia and Haminga, the first, a supernatural being or spirit which accompanies a person in connection to their fate or fortune, and the second, a type of female guardian spirit that was believed accompanied a person and decided their luck and happiness. Or Mythgard, Hugen and Munin both each day set forth to fly. For Hugen I fear lest he come not home, but for Munin my care is more. In the Hemskringla book, an account of the life of Odin is provided. Chapter 7 describes that Odin had two ravens, and upon these ravens he bestowed the gift of speech. These ravens flew all over the land and brought him information, causing Odin to become very wise in his lore. So why choose the crow as my representative? Well, first their intelligence. They're self-aware and conscious. They use tools. Remember the faces of people that they like. They can and do give gifts in response to gift giving. They have a basic and understandable language. To this, add to the fact that they maintain family groups and maintain geographic homes for hundreds of years. Yes. In fact, those crows in your yard are the descendants of other crows from time immemorial. The stories they could tell. By their very nature, they know more of the local area than you and I ever will. I've even taken up talking to them with a call. Finding a family at all the various geographic locations that I visit commonly across four counties in the Black Forest region. In my life, I tend to divide my distiller friends into different tribes. For example, those of the Saint Sparrow group, the ones who have trained with or learned from me the art of distilling, or who learn from my brother Michael Stallings. These are people who I recognize for their hard work with a copper necklace I make that reads Saint Sparrow, patron saint of heathen distillers. It's something that's earned. The Unholy Apple Alliance is a group of brothers equally obsessive about the growing harvesting, pressing, fermenting, and potential distillation of apples. I also give those guys 
a copper necklace to recognize their hard work. But the third group, Les Trois Corbeaux. This is me, my family, my wife, and my daughter. I chose the crow to represent us for the above reasons, but also for some of the folklore following. From LearnReligions.com, The Magic of Crows and Ravens, by Patty Wigington, January 12, 2020. Both crows and ravens have appeared in a number of different mythologies throughout the ages. In some cases, these black-feathered birds are considered an omen of bad tidings, but in others, they may represent a message from the divine. Here is some fascinating crow and raven folklore to ponder. Did you know that crows sometimes appear as a method of divination and prophecy? And in some mythologies, crows are seen as a sign of bad things to come, but in others, they're considered to be messengers from the gods. Crows often appear as a trickster character in folklore and legend. Although crows and ravens are part of the same family, the Corvus family, they're not exactly the same bird. Typically, ravens are much bigger than crows, and they tend to be a bit shaggier looking. The raven actually has more in common with hawks and other predatory birds than the standard smaller size crow. In addition, although both birds have an impressive repertoire of calls and noises they make, the raven's call is usually a bit deeper and more guttural sounding than that of the crow. In Celtic mythology, the warrior goddess known as the Morgan often appears in the form of a crow or a raven or is seen accompanied by a group of them. Typically, these birds appear in groups of three and they are seen as a sign that Morgan is watching or possibly getting ready to pay someone a visit. In some tales of the Welsh myth cycle, the raven is a harbinger of death. Witches and saucers were believed to have the ability to transform themselves into ravens and fly away, thus enabling them to evade capture. Many Native Americans often saw the raven as a trickster, much like coyote. There are a number of tales regarding the mischief of raven, who's sometimes seen as a symbol of transformation. In the legends of various tribes, raven is typically associated with everything from the creation of the world to the gift of sunlight to mankind. Some tribes knew the raven as a stealer of souls. NativeLanguage.org says, In Native American folklore, the intelligence of crows is usually portrayed as their most important feature. In some tribes, the crow is conflated with the raven, a larger cousin of the crow that shares many of the same characteristics. In other tribes, crow and raven are distinct mythological characters. Crows are also used as clan animals in some Native American cultures. Some of the tribes with Crow clans include the Chippewa, the Hopi, and the Pueblo tribes of the American Southwest. Crows sometimes appear as a method of divination. For the ancient Greeks, the Crow was a symbol of Apollo and his role as god of prophecy. Augury, divination using birds, was popular among both the Greeks and the Romans, and augurs interpreted messages based on not only the color of a bird, but the direction from which it flew. A crow flying in from the east or the south was considered favorable. In parts of the Appalachian Mountains, a low-flying group of crows means that illness is coming. But if a crow flies over a house and calls three times, that means an impending death in a family. If the crows call in the morning before the other birds get a chance to sing, it's going to rain. Despite the role as messengers of doom and gloom, it's bad luck to kill a crow. If you accidentally do so, you're supposed to bury it and be sure to wear black when you do. In some places, it's not the sighting of a crow or raven itself, but the number you see which is important. Mike Cahill at Creepy Basement says, seeing just a single crow is considered an omen of bad luck. 
Finding two crows, however, means good luck. Three crows means health, and four crows means wealth. Yet spotting five crows means sickness is coming, and witnessing six crows means death is nearby. Even within the Christian religion, raven holds a special significance. While they are referred to as unclean within the Bible, Genesis tells us that after the flood waters receded, the raven was the first bird Noah sent out from the ark to find land. Also, in the Hebrew Talmud, ravens are credited with teaching mankind how to deal with death. When Cain slew Abel, a raven showed Adam and Eve how to bury the body, because they had never done so before. A little more information is to be found at corvidresearch.blog, Why the Crow is Black and Other Mythology. We'll do a little overview of this, but not the entirety of the article. Since humans began telling stories and writing them down, they've told stories about crows and other corvids. This should come as no surprise considering corvids are found in nearly every corner of the world and are as connected to us now as they were centennials ago. Whether they are sharing or thieving the food we grow, consuming the soft tissues of our dead, or delighting us with their company, corvids have infiltrated the most intimate parts of our lives. They walk the earth cloaked in black and yet persist with the light of life, even we perish through disease and famine. Is this juxtaposition that I think made our human ancestors look upon these glossy feather and conclude they must have some greater tie to creation than their other avian kin? Be it in India, Rome, the Middle East, or North America, they've been written into the oldest stories explaining how the facts of the world came to fruition. With that in mind, let's break from answering questions with the rigors of science this week and embrace the explanations offered by our ancestors. Why the crow is black, according to the Greeks and Romans. Apollo, the son of the most powerful Greek god Zeus, had an important, albeit tumultuous, relationship with crows. The Greek word for crow, koron, comes from the name of Apollo's mistress, Koronis. According to the version of this story told by Apollodorus, although Koronis and Apollo had been lovers, she left him to marry a mortal. The crow, then white, brought news of the marriage to Apollo, who became so incensed he burned the bird's feathers and then burned Koronis to death. In other versions, Koronis is herself turned into the black crow, and it's possible the Greeks saw a mated pair of crows as a representation of the forbidden love between Koronis and her lover. This may be one of the earliest stories of a woman marrying below her class for love. Why the crow is black according to Muslims? Muhammad, born sometime around 570 CE, is considered to be the founder of Islam and a last prophet sent to earth by God, according to the Islamic faith. A popular legend depicts a time Muhammad was hiding from his enemies in a cave. A crow, then white, spotted him and cried, Gar, Gar, meaning cave, to his seekers. They did not comprehend the crow's cries. However, and Muhammad escaped. He turned the crow black for the betrayal and cursed him to only utter one phrase for the rest of time, Gar, Gar. Why the crow is hoarse according to the Greeks and Romans. Apollo sent a raven to gather water for a feast, but the raven was distracted by an unripened fig tree. Determined to obtain the figs, the raven waited until the tree ripened, ate his fill, and then captured a water snake to bring back to Apollo. The water snake, the raven explained, was the reason he was late and unable to collect the requested water, but Apollo saw through the lie. As punishment, Apollo declared the raven could never again drink from the stream until the figs ripened. Since the raven must now wait, his voice is hoarse from thirst.
Why owls and crows fight, according to the Hindus. According to the great animal epic, the birds had come together to elect a king and choose his earthly appearance. They had elected the owl and were beginning to organize his lavish coronation when the crow arrived. The crow laughed at their decision, protesting that the owl was too ugly, his features without tenderness, and his nature without pity. Furthermore, Garuda, the eagle, mounted Vishnu, was already their king, and to take another was a sin that could result in severe punishment by the gods. The others, scattered by the crow's warning, left an agreement. Being nocturnal, the owl had slept through all this, but now awoke to find his coronation canceled due to the crow's persuasive words. They have fought ever since. Why we die according to the Haida natives. Ravens have a significant role in the creation legends of many different Native American tribes. According to the Haida people of what's now the Queen Charlotte Islands, Greater Raven was a creator that first called Earth into being on the endless sea. He then made humans out of both rock and leaf. The people of rock were more difficult to shape and were never finished. The people of Leaf, on the other hand, were quickly completed and ready to roam the land. The raven instructed them that, like the leaf, they must eventually fall and rot back into the earth, and thus death entered the world. Why the night sky is full of light. Greater raven, as mentioned above, eventually gave dominion of the world to his sister's son, Lesser Raven, who it was said was as robust as stone and would live forever. Unlike Greater Raven, Lesser Raven was both a trickster and had a voracious appetite. To satisfy his hunger, Lesser Raven filled the earth with food, but feared he would be unable to find it, as at that time the earth was still dark. Seeking a solution, Raven flew through a hole in the sky where he found another world much like our own. When he saw the daughter of the Chief of Heaven collecting water, he transformed into a needle and floated into her vessel. When she drank the water and the needle, Lesser Raven impregnated her, and was later reborn as her son. The infant charmed the chief and his wife and was granted permission to play with the box containing the light of day. Suddenly, Raven took his original form and flew back to earth through the hole in the sky, taking the box with him. Later, he broke the box out of anger and filled the sky with the sun, moon, and stars. To all this, some of the early sects of Christianity believed that the crow had been white at one point in time as well and turned black due to mourning the crucifixion of the Christ. All but the magpie. The magpie remained partially white because he was distracted by his own thievery. Many stories from around the world also credit the crow with a Prometheus-like quality of stealing fire from the gods and bringing it to mankind. So I figured since we're sort of jumping into some of my more personal sort of beliefs on this particular episode, uh, we would touch on some distilling superstitions from an article that I wrote a couple years ago at thealchemistcabinet.wordpress.com all about distilling superstitions. And I'll drop a couple pieces of this out because I have touched on some of these in the past, particularly, particularly with the uh, haunted distilleries stuff that we've done. But uh, some of the other ones are pretty interesting. And this even touches on some of my beliefs from a couple years ago and some of the things that I put into practice at that time that I still have in practice. Uh, so I thought I'd share this with you and maybe you'll find it interesting. 
So distilling has always been a somewhat mystical art to both the initiated and outsiders. If my two recent entries about pot stills versus columns and sweet mash versus sour mash did nothing else, I would say that they certainly brought illumination to the fact that even many current distillers in the middle of the spirits industry boom don't truly understand their art the way they should. I don't mean that mean-heartedly in any way, shape, or form. I point out these things I see in the industry amongst those on the production side that I think can be better understood, things that other distillers can learn from. And trust me, I am more than humble enough to know I have a long, long way to go before I myself truly feel at ease with my own knowledge. The art has always been like this. From the earliest onset of distillation, the process and methodology has always had a mystical or spiritual element tied closely to its evolution. This isn't only in terms of the physiological nature of alcohol's effects, but in the very nature of distilling itself. Superstition has always been a part of distilling culture and still exists among many in the industry, and more so, of course, amongst folk and farm distillers. The superstitions have cultural markers that are unique to certain traditions, and yet superstition of some sort or another in this line of work has no cultural boundaries. That interests me intensely. Today, we'll take a look at those superstitions, from the inception of spirits distilling as tribute to Bacchus, and up to the current bourbon boom. We will look at how those superstitions serve sometimes as reminders of the care and attention distilling requires, or as reminders of the illegality of producing non-tax-paid spirits. Sometimes these beliefs are nothing more than callbacks to the roots of the tradition, or even uniquely personal quirks of the distillers themselves and have no deeper connotation than that which their originator gives them. Even in the most scientific of distilleries, you cannot avoid the alchemical mysticism associated with the history of distilling as it is literally found in the very word which we use to describe these distilled alcoholic spirits. A word actually descended itself from the name of a simple pot still, a lambic. Distilling will always be associated with alchemy, itself a misunderstood branch of human study that has less to do with transforming lead to gold and more to do with understanding the basis of the material world around us in an effort to better understand the spiritual world beyond us. The very word spirit itself was chosen as a descriptor for those cordial waters because the base of the distilling art is the simple breakdown of raw material into base aromatic components. Plus, you know, that whole additional bonus of the process, alcohol. The very components that delight our sense of smell and the majority of taste. We distill the raw material and then capture the spirit of that material in an effort to contain it and admire it outside of its normal physical boundaries. Thus, through this process, we have created, in essence, a water of life. A phrase chosen because the essence of a raw, naturally grown, but fleeting and seasonal thing has been captured for enjoyment later, out of time and out of place, and perhaps because these waters of life were thought to have some incredibly miraculous powers of healing and life preservation. Truly, distilling was considered a gift from the gods. For the Dionysian cults who presumably picked up the gift from the Orient, with distilling being underway in China by 800 BC, distilling was very much so a mystical rite, only to be performed and taught to initiates of an order high enough to understand its primal power, true mystery religion stuff. By the 5th century BC, the Menids, female followers of Dionysus, were recorded in poem carrying bronze stillheads at Delphi during biennial rituals. These they would dress outwardly as an effigy of the god of wine. The still itself having three outputs made of piping in the shape of a cross, 
was heated and the resulting uncondensed distillate was then lit on fire in order that the flames may appear to come from the hands and the head of this effigy. The flames could also be colored by way of various chemical compounds added to the base wine or left in the vapor path. The term baptism by fire can be traced to the same cult who would, by the addition of sulfur and water to the condensed distillate of wine, make the spirit safe to pour upon an initiate and light upon fire without burning. Miraculous in all ways to onlookers who were uninitiated in such theatrics. Proof of the provenance of the god of wine over his converts. The wine itself was viewed as the blood of the slayed Dionysus slash Bacchus, and the dislet was then seen as evidence of his spiritual nature and rebirth and subsequent resurrection at fertility rites held in the spring of the year, transmutation at its finest. Later, certain of the Christian Gnostic sects would use the same method for initiation into their rites. The tradition of distilling was protected, preserved, and passed yet again only to their initiated. In the Coptic Gnostic text known as the Bruce Papyrus, a figure representing Jesus is mentioned carrying out a long ceremony, including a presumed distillation of something that sounds very similar to modern-day aquavites. From these Gnostic cults, the trail of distilling history leads directly to Egyptian Coptic tradition, and from there it is passed as holy knowledge to the Templars and the Cathars on its way via monks to the British Isles. All rich sources of folklore and superstition well documented throughout history. All of this history, of course, simply points us in the direction of more modern distilling folklore and superstition. The British Isles have long been a rich source of such superstition considering how long the art has been practiced in the region. The Irish, as example, often give St. Patrick credit for bringing distilling to the Isles, but focus their superstitions much more on the old pagan myths of bygone days. As you will see, not everything is simply fairy dust. The particular superstition I am about to discuss, as you will find, actually has its roots based on an understanding of the dangers of methanol in distilled spirits production, and on the unfortunate kidnapping of the healthy children of peasants by royal servants. I would classify this one as a functional superstition, which exists in both parts as a warning to would-be illicit distillers and peasants learning the trade. Amongst the hills of Connemara, Ireland, the pochin makers of old practice a highly functional superstitious rite while distilling. Trained distillers who truly understood the danger of the first fraction of distillate they were distilling were few and far between, but it was well understood from experience that this fraction, the fours or the foreshot, could potentially cause temporary blindness and other physical maladies and would also put a hamper on the next morning's work. To combat the urge to keep this distillate as part of the larger yield, Despite the danger, a complex folklore was developed and passed from distilling father to son in order to train and subsequently remind them that they should toss this fraction aside. The distiller would collect the first cup of distillate to leave the serpentine condenser and subsequently toss this with his right hand over his left shoulder in tribute to the fairies. Even after the introduction of Christianity into the Emerald Isle, the pagan belief system was still strong amongst these people, and the belief in and subsequent respect of the quote-unquote little people, or fairies, was woven deeply into culture. Most Pochin distillers were of the lowest social class of peasants and hadn't much to show for their existence. Farm and family were all they had, and often the birth of a son or heir signaled not only joy in the arrival of a healthy and well-loved child, but respite that one day there would be an extra hand around the farm. 
Unfortunate then that quite often these male children of Pochin distillers were placed in bed at night in healthy states, only to be discovered in the morning as a sickly or debilitated child. Word quickly spread that something had been done to anger the fey folk, and in exchange, mischievous little assholes that they are, the fairies had kidnapped the child and replaced him with a changeling, a child originating from the fairies, the original child never to be seen again. Since most distillers were peasants, and most peasants were distillers, it would seem logical, of course, that in some way, shape, or form, the fey folk had been shorted their due right in some regard during the production of illicit whiskey, and it was quickly rationalized that the little folks were simply not getting their share of the new-make spirits. Subsequently, the Irish pochin makers quickly adopted the habit and superstition of collecting the first fraction in a cup and throwing it out via their right hand over their left shoulder while verbally offering it to the little people. So scared of the threat that their child might be replaced with a changeling did the pochin makers become that they took to dressing their boys in female clothing to trick the fairies into not taking their heirs from them. Sometimes this was continued well into childhood, and the practice was still in play as late as the 1890s. While occasionally a child thought to be a changeling was more likely simply a case of undiagnosed or misunderstood mental or physical health problems, there was something else just as sinister, as a fairy kidnapping happening on a limited basis. Occasionally, the landed gentry and royals, who often suffered from various genetic disorders due to inbreeding, would give birth to a sickly child. Needing a viable heir, as well as not wanting the public to see that their own biological children were suffering from genetic conditions, meant that occasionally, they would have a servant kidnap a child from the local peasant population and replace the child with their own. So prevalent was this belief amongst the Pochin distillers that the excisemen often had suspicions aroused of a local moonshiner by way of seeing his sons wearing dresses and growing their hair long, and this was a suspicion enough to warrant further investigation of the issue. Another old Connemara tradition is the Pochin toast, tied closely to the hatred of the crown. This is to those that wish us well, to those who don't may go to hell. In Scotland, distilling was carried out very early on by monks, the same who first came to Ireland, whose monasteries were later dissolved by Henry VIII. Most of these trained distillers, of course, never stopped partaking of their art and instead turned to the business as their income. Many superstitions, of course, grew from this tradition, and many distillers have their own individual stories. The naming of stills is another old distiller's tradition tied to superstition. Although the origins are fairly unclear, it would make sense though that given the time the distiller spends with the still and the nature of the still's purpose in creating new make spirit that a name would be appropriate. This is particularly true of pot stills, each of which has its own identity and its own unmistakable markers of character and subsequent spirit quality. I suspect the tradition is similar to naming ships for good luck, and that is much the way that I see it. I wouldn't sail on a ship with no name, and I certainly wouldn't run a still without one quite truthfully. The consequences? Well, to be honest, I don't know, because I've never had a still that I didn't give a moniker. Tradition is to give the still a woman's name, but some do buck that tradition. For my own purposes, I've always focused on goddesses of antiquity, Isis, Sophia, Inanna, Ishtar, or women of biblical origin, Magdalena, Lilith, Joan but always a female, and usually one with some amount of divinity ascribed. I always choose the name based on the character of the still. Is she difficult to run? 
Is she versatile and filled with knowledge? Is she physically beautiful? And the spirit she makes. I've occasionally run a spirit on a still that I named prior to the first run, and then decided the name wasn't befitting, and changed the name subsequently to something more appropriate. Traditional distillers across the world have always believed in the idea of protective trinkets of some sort, an icon perhaps, or even a token of luck. Sometimes the items can be religious in nature, such as a Catholic medallion portraying St. Louis, the patron saint of distillers. Other times these objects are secular, or even pagan in nature. Often these items are hidden out of sight of prying eyes, and for those who are very superstitious, they may be looked at in a manner similar to a mojo hand. Put simply, they are seen as a source of knowledge, understanding, and even mastery of the arts, and are very well hidden from nosy competitors with sticky fingers, who might choose to steal from them their own, for their own selfish wants. This may sound intense, and you, the listener, might think this is relegated to the superstitions of yesteryear or only abounds in far-off places, but you would be wrong. I've had conversations with many modern legal and illicit distillers that carry or hide their own trinkets. I place this belief back upon that mystical knowledge the alchemists and cults gave us about distilling, and the knowledge of the process thereof being sacred, and a gift, only to be revealed to the initiated. These trinkets are subsequently seen by their owners as a physical manifestation of that gift, knowledge, and skill, and are not to be seen by everyone. Subsequently, they are only shared with a select few. I myself have three such trinkets of which all have distinct meaning and use, and no, I won't tell you what any of them are. Another version of the same superstition harkens back to moonshiners, who would often hide something of some value in plain sight around the area of their illicit operation. This wasn't done as much for the belief in the object's power, although they might stretch the truth to imply as such, as it was for a simple alarm system for the distiller that if it had been altered from its position or stolen from the site in the intervening days or hours that someone had found the clandestine distillery. Some superstitions associated with moonshining have more to do with maintaining the silence of the producers outside of the accepted circle of people in the know and closely resemble the Italian concept of omerta. A valid example of this is seen in the old East Coast circles where a ritual called cleaning hands is performed each and every time any action is taken around the production of illicit liquor. An old towel was hung next to the door of the building, serving as the still house of the stash house, and as work was completed for the day, each participant was to stop and clean their hands on this towel. No actual cleaning was accomplished with this action, but it existed to remind those in the inner circle that they were to leave what they had done behind when they left the production site and to remind them not to speak of it outside of the circle. This was done any time anyone came in contact with the production or the equipment itself, even if it was just by happenstance, and was maintained with the understanding that forgetting to clean your hands might cause one to get caught in the act. More so, this let out those in the inner circle know and understand who in the circle paid such close attention to detail as to always observe the action and to feel reassured about how careful they were in this action and how that might reflect on the care they might otherwise take to protect the illicit nature of their operations. Other superstitions had more to do with the skilled artisan in the group training the less skilled and the quality and care which should enter every facet of production in the art of distillation. These superstitions usually started right at the beginning of the distillation cycle with the harvesting of raw material. For example, in some traditions, while harvesting fruit, the person harvesting is only to ever hold the vessel to contain the raw material with their left hand, 
and only to pick the fruit and place the fruit in the vessel with their right hands. To do otherwise would be proof positive that attention to detail wasn't being placed as a priority on the objective goal, and to further enforce this, it was often repeated that even allowing the left hand to touch the material would ruin the entire batch. The same premise was applied sometimes to the way that illicit liquor was stored, particularly in cases where previously used bottles of legal liquor were used to store the illicit alcohol. The placement on the shelf of such bottles was always that they were to be faced with the labels facing the wall and not forward, both as a superstition and to avoid confusion about which alcohol was which. It was often said that the alcohol having been stored facing the wrong direction would destroy the quality of the product. Distilling having been so closely associated with agriculture and the turning of the seasons. It is no doubt unsurprising that in many cultures, a day of distilling often turns into a celebration and that some of the new-make spirit might be used for these purposes as well. Often, at the very least, a toast would be made in an almost prayer-like fashion in order that the new-make might be blessed to maintain its quality of stored in glass or to improve in quality of stored in wood in the coming winter months and that it might maintain any and all needed medicinal qualities for the imbiber as well. Many times these toasts were made to long-lost loved ones or other people who are highly revered by the distillers. In modern times, my reenactment group follows a superstition similar to this. As we are oftentimes playing the character of bygone distillers, we will make sure and visit the graves at least once a year and offer a toast to those who came before us, both in remembrance but also as a sign of respect. At Spirits of French Lick Distillery, I've recently been working on a line of products that pay homage to long-lost distilleries and personalities of the past. These labels have been a big hit, and for me it's been an honor to be able to pay tribute to what came before. But I have, from the very beginning, made it a practice to claim bottle number one through three, and personally deliver those bottles to either the grave of the person the product is named after, or the next of kin, or to pour it in tribute to those who inspired it. I do this because I'm a superstitious person, but also as a sign of respect for those who paved the way for me. Of course, there's an old superstition we are all familiar with about the bad luck associated with the number 13. In an ironic everything old is new again tradition, moonshiners notoriously avoided ball jars printed with the number 13 on the bottom, and even purposefully destroyed them in order to avoid the negativity associated with the numbers, which in turn has made such jars quite valuable in the world of collectors. Ironically, one of the many reasons postulated for the unluckiness of the number is the supposition that King Philip arrested and had executed many of the Knights Templar on Friday the 13th of October in 1307. The irony again being that as initiates, many of these Templars certainly understood the distilling arts. Other superstitions might have been more in line with either sexism or old school Jewish slash Old Testament laws about cleanliness. Many old school Appalachian moonshiners thought that having a woman going through her cycle come in contact with the fermenting mash would ruin the mash itself and subsequently shun them from the still side at that time. Although superstition around the still house is by far less common than it once was, it does certainly still exist, and I weekly seem to gather another fast or two from some far off place. In time, I'd like to continue to publish them here as I find them interesting in their cultural context and wide variety, and also indicative of the type of person running the still. If you have any you'd like to share, I'd be glad to hear them.
None of this stuff probably comes as any surprise to anyone who knows me or who has been to my house or farm. Uh, distilling superstition and or higher belief systems certainly surround every aspect of my life all the way down to the various trinkets that I wear, uh, including the St. Sparrow trinkets or the existence of a old school wooden road sign made out of once used barrel staves and painted with the names and arrows in the directions of a lot of the old distillers uh, homes and or distilleries here in Washington, Orange, Lawrence, Crawford, Harrison, and Perry County. That way the wayward souls, should they decide to hang around on earth a little while or hang around me a little while, have a way to find their way home. But more than that, there are other things that I do. So anywhere that I distill, you're probably going to find a hagstone in particular. And for those that don't know what a hagstone is, it's a stone with a natural hole in it. It's used to see to the other side. I hang these around various distillation places uh, to remind me of the past and the future, and maybe as a means of inspiration or sometimes even communication with the other side. I often pour a little spirit for both the spirits of the land as well as the spirits of the past that I'm paying homage to and my ancestors. That's a common theme across many cultures, not only to do with distillation itself, but with the act of spirits being able to open doors and change mindsets, change perception, uh, which can be a very positive thing when used responsibly and a very negative thing when abused. Spirit is a tool for sure. Of that, there can be no doubt. And that tool can be abused. And when it is abused, it will punish you. I have always said as part of the story of my current distillery, Spirits of French Lick, that it's not just the spirits in the bottle, but the spirits of the place. And I mean that in a very real way. This idea of pairing a spirit and a story and an actual historical character in such a way that you can make their story more interesting and make it uh, more relevant to people who would otherwise not know who any of these characters are. But you have to be able to capture the essence of who that person was and pair it with a particular spirit. And then it becomes almost a form of necromancy. I know this all sounds fairly dark, but as I mentioned in the previous segment, I do pay tribute to those spirits as well by making sure that they get bottles number one uh, or someone related to them gets bottle number two or the place where they live gets bottle number two or three, etc. All the way down to Lee Sinclair having bottle number one of our two-year-old Lee Sinclair bourbon and bottle number one of our four-year-old Lee Sinclair bourbon in his mausoleum. Maddie Gladden actually has bottle number one in her personal safe in her old home slash brothel in Salem, Indiana. 90% of magic is literally tied up with the idea of what an action means to you and your own perception. And I certainly think that these actions have meaning to me on a spiritual level, on a way that I think a lot of people wouldn't understand or they might misunderstand, so to speak. Actions such as collecting a little bit of grave dirt from the top of a grave and, and keeping that in a very special place hidden away for certain of these characters that I have either portrayed and or paid tribute to over the years. Um, this idea of sort of an other or a spirit guide, which is common across cultures and which I've certainly put into practice. Uh, much like the actual act of imbibing the alcohol itself, this is something that one should be very careful with. Uh, it is very easy to 
fall into the hands of a bad actor and not necessarily are all of those spirits human nor were some of them ever human and some of them are certainly uh, not looking out for your best interest so you have to be careful with that I have a ceremony that I do every spring to awaken the spirit of what I call and not even what I call but what was Mr. Reverend Thomas Green near Bexmill, Indiana, and I have a ceremony every fall where I put him back to bed because if I don't, I find myself in a whole heap of trouble. I know that's vague, and I know there's going to be some people out there that think that that's kind of a goofy thing, but that's okay. I've been there, and I've experienced it, and I've seen some new people in the industry who are also experiencing things trying to reach out to them and touch base with them, and some of the things they're trying to reach out to them and touch base with them are not positive entities uh, not in any way shape or form could they be misconstrued as positive entities and they are not necessarily always easy to identify as such that uh, the only way that I can identify when I've gotten myself in a little bit of trouble is literally when I start to notice that I'm acting out in a way that I would not normally act out now I tend to have a little bit of a joking personality anyways and that gets amped up quite a bit whenever I'm tapping into these uh, these forces, if you will, outside of myself. But when that becomes somewhat self-destructive and very attention-seeking, I know that something else is going on and it's time to take steps to protect myself. I'm seeing this happen with a couple of friends in the industry currently right now in terms of something is literally trying to reach out to them and touch base with them that I don't think that they want anything to do with. One friend who has noticed a number of uh, let's call it poltergeist type activities around his home. Uh, that's that's certainly something trying to reach out and touch base. Now, whether that's positive or negative for him, I don't know. And what that spirit may be, I don't know. A couple of other very good friends of mine recently, their son took a picture of a mirror in his uh, uh, his bedroom, and a few images popped up in that mirror, including the image of a. Uh, clearly non-human entity in the right upper hand corner the left hand corner uh, his face was off into the the distance a bit there's what looks a little bit like Kronos or Grim Reaper type figure uh, right in front of him with a large light in front of it underneath that there's a picture of his wife and the picture of his wife is uh, her face is much larger than all the other portraits short of Kronos, and she's looking off in the opposite direction of uh, both him as well as Kronos, but looking in the same direction as the being in the upper right-hand corner. Uh, this is something, in my opinion, very negative that's trying to reach out and touch base with her and trying to bring itself into this world. Of course, Mira scrying or captromancy as it's often referred to is an old school method of divination and one that I believe very firmly in um, it was not done on purpose in this particular case and I, she she's very aware of what has has or what is apparent in that mirror um, I don't know she's I know she is taking steps to sort of protect herself and I don't know that she interprets it the same way that I did but as a friend I felt like I should let her and her husband obviously know at that time 
what I was seeing. It's very much like a tarot card. It doesn't mean that that's what's going to happen. It means that that's what's trying to happen or that's the trajectory that it was headed in. And so as such, knowing that ahead of time, you can take steps to sort of protect yourself from those sort of things. And with that being said, um, I wanted to touch on some recent writing that I've been doing uh, and read a little section to you from what I think will end up being the third Alchemist Cabinet book uh, regarding these sorts of spirits. All spirits of lower and higher powers that can and do interact with humans seek out physical conduits in order to act out what their true nature is in the observable human realm. Some were previously like us. You might call them ghosts, particularly if their spirit still lingers in this realm. Some are the residue left by humans who have since ascended to higher planes but leave behind a shadow or some other presence of their former life, a type of archetype, if you will. Some, and this class, is the most dangerous, were never human or anything like it. You may know them as demons or jinn, principalities and powers, the gods of old, land spirits, and little people. All of these above will seek and do seek to make deals with the open-minded distiller. All wander about the common distillery, the distiller's home, and the various places where chaotic imbibing and energy abounds. They are particularly attracted to the ability of distilled spirit to be imbued with both ideas of legacy and belief, as well as the liquor's potency in affecting the mind of man. Some are beneficial, some are malevolent, Working with them is sometimes confusing. It takes knowing exactly what class you are dealing with and what those spirits want must be taken into deep consideration. Can they be controlled or subdued if needed? What is their price? Can you pay it? Many will read this, some with a skeptical or even completely doubting mind. Some people that mindset I might even call brother or sister. This isn't written for them. It was written for you, my friend. The one who feels that distilling is obviously more than meets the eye, more than simply chemistry, ego, and marketing. Well, there you have it, guys. The last episode of Season 2 of If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. I hope you've enjoyed sort of learning about some of my personal distilling-related belief systems. Um, and maybe it shines a little light onto why I do this show or even where the name If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything really came from. Uh, of course, it was a Rocky Erickson song, and I'm a huge Rocky Erickson fan. But years and years ago, um, even before I got into the legal industry, if I were to you know, post something about distillation, I would often caption it as, if you have ghosts, you have everything. Because this stuff plays into my everyday life, my career, my hobbies, my loves, my passions, etc. If you guys enjoy the show, please like and share and give it a five-star review. That really helps us out in the rankings. We're going to take a, a short break here, 
and sort of put start putting together episodes for season three and really spend some time on those because there's some deep dive stuff that really is going to take a lot of writing and research on my behalf to get put together in such a way that I want to put it together. But you will have an episode coming up for Easter, uh, specifically, of course, like we've done with the previous religious or spiritual holidays about the heathen roots of Easter. Uh, I look forward to doing that. I think you guys will look forward to hearing it as well. In the meantime, if you would, if you're at all interested in distillation, check out the One Piece of the Time Distilling Institute on YouTube, where I share all of my distilling-related knowledge with people who have questions about either home distilling or large production distilling. As well, go to thealchemistcabinet.com. We just published my second book. It's really more of a pamphlet than a book, but it's... uh, I think you'll find some things that are interesting in there if you're interested in the art of distillation. So book one and book two. Book one is the Alchemist Cabinet Philosophy that was written several years back, which is kind of a a background in myself as well as some early methodology that I developed. Uh, Book two is called the Black Forest Method, and it very much uh, focuses on some of the prototyping sort of things I've done, a lot of recipe development, things like that. If you're at all interested in botanical spirits, there's a ton of information in there about the distillation of botanical spirits including various recipes. Uh, A lot of them are ironically based on uh, orange juice distillate, which is kind of a weird thing, but I think you'll enjoy it. Of course, all the money that you spend at thealchemistcabinet.com at the warehouse, which is our store on there, that all goes back into either if you have ghosts, you have everything, and or the one piece of the time distilling institute, at least until we really start making some money off of it. But guys, thanks for checking out season two. We love you, and we'll catch you soon.